Hello world, I'm Jared Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum 2020 podcast series. Uh, over the years, the Freelance Forum has been made possible by support from the National Union of Journalists and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. This is episode number 11, uh, recognising fake news, and I'm joined by Eileen Collity. Eileen, could you start by just telling me a bit about yourself? Well, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Fujio Institute at Dublin City University. So that's the Institute for Future Media and Journalism. And principally what I work on is a European project on how to counter disinformation. So we want to understand how we can help people make better judgments about the content they're seeing online, whatever low quality content that might be. And that turns out to be particularly timely at the moment, I think, because COVID and everything surrounding it has been ample ground for people wanting to amplify disinformation. And also for audiences, I think a lot of the, the work we do is focused on this emotionally effective content, content that's trying to scare people or make them fearful. And that's really what we've seen with COVID, this terrible global crisis that people are searching for answers, they can't find it, they're worried. And this is what makes disinformation so appealing to people. Could you go into that? What is it about uh, rumours and disinformation that, that, that does appeal to people so much that makes them want to, whether want to share or want to believe? Yeah, I think you make an important distinction there between sharing it and believing it, because somebody who shares something, they don't necessarily believe it. And it's uh, a false assumption that we have that everyone who engages with conspiracy theory or a rumour actually believes it. Some of the research that has been done suggests that most people share disinformation because they're concerned about other people. So if you see something about vaccines being dangerous and you have um, someone in your family who's about to vaccinate a child, you might share that just in case it is true. You might not actually believe that it is. And a lot of the COVID-19 disinformation is quite similar. A rumor goes around that something is happening and people share it out of, it's a a goodwill towards other people, really. And that's because that means we can harness that goodwill and maybe help people understand that you shouldn't share things if you think they might not be true because you could be doing harm in the long run. Does that also mean that you shouldn't share things in order to debunk them? Like, should I not forward a uh, an article or reply to an article about vaccines or whatever with a link to Snopes or some other fact-checking site saying here's the actual truth of the matter? Am I amplifying the bad news by doing that? Or am I countering it? That's a really good point. So a lot of debunking or how you respond to something that you know is false, it's about the way that you do it. So the big issue with particularly the media and amplifying disinformation is if they're reporting on stories that very few people believed or heard of in the first place. So we saw this with the 5G content where a lot of the people, a lot of the content that was being created was actually the media pointing it out or other people saying, this is stupid, this is ridiculous. So suddenly more people are now aware that there's this 5G link or supposed 5G link, they would never have heard it beforehand. So when the media are going to report something, or indeed any individual, it is important to reinforce the correct information. So as you say, replying with the Snopes article that demonstrates this is why it is wrong, here's the correct evidence. 
I'm just thinking when you talk about the 5G, uh, back in the 1990s, there was uh, an attack on a telephone mast in Donegal near Ardra, which ended up becoming part of the Morris Tribunal, which I covered then in the early 2000s. So the idea that there's something weird about radio signals or electric signals, I don't think is new. It just gets reborn every few years. I think if you go back to the 80s, the concern was electricity pilots. Is it becoming worse because of the internet accelerating things, or is this just something that's already been with us and we're just particularly sensitive to it at the moment? I think in the case of conspiracy theories, they've always been around, and it's perhaps that they're far more visible now, and the people who promote them are far more visible. So we have conspiracy theorists in the White House with many political leaders endorsing conspiracy theories. But you're absolutely right about the 5G and that every new wireless technology has been accompanied by a period of panic. Apart from the ones you mentioned, there was uh, microwave ovens which were going to radiate all of us. When mobile phones first came out, there was this fear that they'd lead to mass sterilization because people keep them in their pockets. So the, the unveiling of each new technology has been accompanied by this period of fear and then very quickly people forget about it and just use the technology. Unfortunately, the rollout of 5G happened to coincide with a global health crisis. So it's really, it's, to me, it's not that surprising that this caught on suddenly and captured people's imaginations. Because when there's this huge uh, upheaval or some um, event of great significance, many people want an equally great explanation for why this has happened. And a story about um, a virus spreading from bats or some other animal to humans in a market in China isn't as exciting as the story that there is a conspiracy linked to the 5G phone network. Where do these conspiracy theories come from? I mean, do they rise up organically? Um, or some seem to be hoaxes that are pursued with a particular agenda behind them. Some are just rumours that seem to have no specific origin. What are the different kinds of uh, disinformation that uh, people should identify? Well, so if we stay with uh, COVID at the moment, which is the one we've all been immersed in, we've had um, a lot of rumours, particularly at the the beginning of the crisis. So you have rumors about new cases or rumors about health advice. And the rumors are very interesting because it's not always clear that those were created with a bad intention. When we talk about disinformation, we typically mean that somebody has deliberately created false information to deceive the public. But with the rumors, it often wasn't clear whether people believed they were true or not. And certainly sharing rumors fits in with what I was saying uh, earlier about people sharing information because they want to help others. So just in case this is true, maybe you should be aware of this. And we also saw a lot of hoaxes, and those were more obvious to find. So somebody has um, used Leo Varadkar's Twitter account to create a false claim. Or uh, one of my favorites was the hoax saying that everyone returning from Cheltenham had to check into a hotel at Dublin Airport, which seems like they were created to play a trick on people, but then they don't know who sees them and other people can take them up differently. We've also seen a lot of scams, so um, often targeting older people, but scams that might use the logos of the HSE or the WHO, and they're looking for bank details. And then separate to that, there's the conspiracy theories 
when we differentiate conspiracy theories because they're quite elaborate narratives explaining why or who created the virus. And then we have political propaganda from Russia, China, Iran, the US, uh, a lot of anti-EU political propaganda. And then apart from all of that, we just have a whole range of inaccurate opinions. So if you think of uh, all the people you follow on Twitter and how many of them turned themselves into epidemiologists over the past few months and suddenly have opinions on all of these complicated matters. So it's very hard to often draw a line between all of these different things. What precautions should people take in dealing with uh, the news because of this? Um, what are the things to watch out for? Are there particular danger signs that could clue you in this may not be just what it seems. There may be more to this or less to it, as the case may be. Well, I think if somebody is concerned about a piece of information, the first thing to do is look at the source. Where is it coming from? But also, are other news outlets reporting the same piece of information? So a lot of the hoaxes have claimed that official bodies have said something or are imposing some new measures. If that was true, that would be reported across the media, not just on this WhatsApp message you got or on a Facebook post. But things like conspiracy theories, they're usually claiming that they know and have some secret knowledge about why the virus was created or who is ultimately responsible. So those ones are often easier to spot because they're, they're making very definitive uh, claims. In terms of the media itself though, I mean, it's, and a lot of people have reported initially they were consuming huge volumes of news media and then they kind of stopped because they just couldn't take it all anymore. And we've seen a lot of reporting of new studies and but there's so much scientific uncertainty that it's hard to make any sense of every single study. So one study makes one claim, then another study comes along and makes another claim. I think one a very interesting one was the whole scenario around ibuprofen. So there was a French study that said ibuprofen um, would make the effects of COVID-19 worse. Then a lot of official uh, health bodies disagreed with that. So people who are claiming that ibuprofen was bad would be considered disinformation. And then weeks later, the WHO itself changed its stance on ibuprofen. So there's so much official uncertainty that it can be quite difficult to give people hard or fast rules of uh, what to believe. Moving just from people uh, who are reviewing the news or what's presented as news to the newsmakers. Uh, what should journalists, fact checkers, researchers and so on, what kind of things should they be looking out for? What And what approaches are the best approaches for a journalist to take in countering false information, whether it's malicious or otherwise? I think one of the most important things is the, the point you raised earlier about amplification and not to amplify false information. A lot of debunking tends to put the false information in the headline and the debunk is buried somewhere at the bottom. So leading with correct information is very important. And if at all possible, avoid repeating the false information at all. Because one of the problems is if you think of people skimming lots of news, if you only see the headlines and the headline has repeated the false information, there's a danger that people are just taking away, oh, there's a link between 5G and COVID, so I should be scared of that. But they haven't read all the way down and taken in the debunk. And a related point is 
I think journalists and fact checkers should ask themselves, is it necessary to publish this debunk? And when would it be appropriate to publish the debunk? So just because you come across a piece of disinformation and you've put the time into debunking it, doesn't mean it's most valuable to actually publish it. So if there's a rumor going around and it's quite widespread, well, that needs to be debunked. If there's a rumor that's confined to a pretty small group of people and there's very little engagement with it, then it might not be necessary to publish that debunk at all. Okay. As a journalist, how do, how do I measure that? How do I determine whether this is something that's very small and I'm going to amplify it if I cover it, or this is something that a lot of people are sharing? Are, are there metrics or other signs I can use that will tell me which ones to concentrate on, on countering? Well, this is, this is precisely the difficulty uh, for journalists and why a lot of uh, counter-disinformation recommendations, particularly in organisations like uh, First Draft, which would be the, the leading organisation in this area, what they recommend and are trying to do is to build up more cooperation between journalists and between newsrooms so that they're sharing information. And by sharing information, they're not all doubling up on the same work, but also sharing background about their insights on whether something is gaining traction with their audiences or not. Because this seems to be key. It's uh, perhaps not as simply a matter of just debunking the claim and the claim stays the same. They evolve over time and people's engagement evolves over time. So quite a lot of effort has to go into just monitoring and being aware of that engagement, not just debunking the false claim. The big issue is around how can journalists responsibly report false claims? And there aren't, um, there aren't best practice standards there yet, so the, the advice is to be cautious and avoid doing things that might ultimately lead more people to end up with false beliefs than beforehand. How would you rate how Ireland's doing actually at the minute, and how how are we how, how are Irish journalists doing? Um, I couldn't really say any informed opinion there because I haven't followed COVID news all that much <laughs> at all. I'm one of the people that thought I just can't uh, can't take too much of this, but I think it's been quite good in that there hasn't been. So the Guardian's coverage has been extensive, but they tend to report all these new studies. I think mm. Irish response has been a bit more measured than that, not reporting every new study that comes out. And inevitably, all these studies contradict each other, which is quite common in science reporting in general, that the public are left with a very confused, you know, that idea of one week drinking red wine is good for you, the next week it's bad for you. And mm. I think some mm. news outlets internationally have gone down that road with COVID and Ireland hasn't really. There used to be a satirical Twitter account that once a week would tweet out what the Daily Mail said will give you cancer this week. Monday, sunshine. Tuesday, fresh air. Wednesday, water. And never the Daily Mail, which could probably give you cancer as well. <laughs> in terms of putting the debunk in at the start, because obviously these days especially, people won't even read the first paragraph, never mind the second. They just see the headline if it's tweeted out. One of the precepts in journalism is to try to avoid a negative headline so how do you present 5g does not cause covid without having a, ne a negative headline 
or or is is that just a journalist's concern and not something that would worry you as someone looking at disinformation? Well, I wouldn't normally think. Um, I never worked as a journalist, so I wouldn't think in the mindset of a journalist. But I would imagine it would be more that um, scientists confirm that five G is safe. So it is the positive, but it's reinforcing that uh, rather than reinforcing in the headline the idea that there's a link between the two. Even a headline that says 5G does not cause COVID reinforces the idea that some people think it does and that there might be a problem there. Scientists confirm that 5G is a safe technology, doesn't create any link to COVID at all. Are there particular media that are better or worse either for spreading disinformation or for countering it? Which would be more effective as a debunk, a five-minute radio piece on, on drive time or a, a, brief, a news article on my phone or on paper? Or are there differences? Is that something that's been looked at? Well, I guess it would depend on what community was most likely to believe it or targeted in the first place. So if a lot of disinformation shares on social media, the five minute or the piece on local radio might catch the people who received it on WhatsApp. The article in the Irish Times might not because there might be no overlap between those audiences. A lot of disinformation is also very simple and very visual, whereas debunks tend to be very text heavy and very detailed. So there's also a suggestion that you need those detailed well thought out debunks, but they also need to be presented in a very easy to understand format that matches the very easy to understand format of the disinformation. So good graphic design and graphs and so on that get across the point fairly fast. Exactly. I think an interesting point is, like as you mentioned already, that disinformation and conspiracy theories, these things are not new, but they certainly seem very prevalent in our current time. What's also prevalent is this issue of trust, whether people trust the media to begin with, whether they trust politicians or governments. And it's, I think that trust issue is the really important one that society needs to address. And that the disinformation problem is really a symptom of this bigger collapse of trust. So I don't know if you noticed yesterday that um, Scum Media was trending on Twitter in the UK. So it was people, the, the Vote Leave supporters, attacking the media for pointing out the failings of Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. And this kind of anti-mainstream media sentiment is quite destructive if the media are best placed to debunk information and to provide the reliable information. So that's the one I'd be most concerned about over the long term is how can we address that i think a related issue is the media mindset is often to remain impartial and not to decide so you do on the one hand and on the other hand and that might be a valid approach to two people deciding or having a political argument over you know whether to privatize an industry or something but you can't really do an equal time debate when you have one person who's a scientist and the other person thinks that there's a microchip in their skull that's sending them secret signals from Venus. 
sometimes journalists get gamed into doing precisely that and creating a false equivalence. And it's not necessarily as a result that everyone believes the false information, but that the people who are propagating it are given a credibility that they don't deserve. And that longer term just, it corrodes trust, I think, because it corrodes credibility. I think so. And we've seen that a lot with climate change over the years, this false debate with scientists on one side. And then it often is a scientist on the other side, but they're a scientist in the minority and most of their peers think they're, they're wrong. I think also for the news media, they need to look at the, the people that are invited to give comment and to be contrary and to stir up debate, which played an important role in the past. But now we have an abundance of people who create controversy and stir up debate across social media. So perhaps there needs to be a, a look at what is the role of those opinion comments and what thought process lies behind uh, offering those spaces to certain people. Is it to just drive clicks and get engagement? Because then it's no different to what happens on social media. Or is it going to be something that's more responsible and has greater credibility and garners trust in the news media? Eileen, thank you for talking to me and take care of yourself. Thank you.